Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Jake. I'm the lead pastor here. And I usually uh, preach on Sunday mornings, but I haven't preached the last month. And I know you guys were like jonesing, right? You were just like, whoa, I need to, so you get your fix today. Actually, that's more about me, right? I was jonesing uh, to get up and preach, and so I'm excited to be back uh, preaching uh, today and excited that we have a, a, a great group of pastors at our church who can jump up and preach and do an excellent job. Aren't, don't you guys agree with that uh, if you were here in January? So it was really good. I do welcome all of you, um, all of you to uh, church today, even the Patriots fans. I still, you guys, kind of, okay? So you, I'm happy you're here a little bit. Um, So, no, I'm excited to get into the Word today and start a new series we're calling Game Changers, uh, preaching series that, uh, the idea of this series is just that we are going to talk about eight different uh, people in the Old Testament who were game changers uh, in their time and in their situation. God used them, empowered them uh, to change the game for those around them. And so uh, it's going to be eight weeks right up to Easter, and uh, I invite you to be here for all of those. And uh, I think this series is going to be really good. And uh, we're going to try to zero in on one characteristic, one thing uh, of each game changer and kind of try to take that home with us and learn from that. The idea of this series is just that we open up the scriptures, uh, read about uh, these people that God used mightily, and we allow the scriptures to teach us uh, through that, okay? And so that's, that's just the, the basic idea here, uh, that we'll let the scriptures uh, teach us through these people's stories, the accounts of their lives. But uh, we'll, we'll jump right into it. Uh, and uh, so if you have your Bible, you can grab it, head over to Judges chapter 4 and James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the Version Bible app on your uh, iPad or on your tablet, I should say, those of you who haven't, whatever. So I'm not going to do Apple PC right now. Not today, all right? Apple's better. Okay, so if you, you can get your tablet or your phone, you can head over to the Version Bible app, get all of our notes there by clicking live event. Um, but the, what we're trying to do in this series uh, is... We can't talk about all eight, or we can't talk about all eight, we can't talk about all eight, we can't talk about all the game changers in the Old Testament, it's too many, we only have eight weeks, and so as we plan this out, uh, since we're going to be doing a series uh, not too long from now on Exodus, on the Exodus, on the journey of the Israelites out of Egypt and to the promised land, that includes uh, Joseph, Moses, and Joshua, and so we decided to start this series after that, uh, but we'll take, we tried to make it to where we're taking a game changer in each kind of era of the Old Testament all the way up to the end uh, so that you can kind of get a feel for how the Old Testament flows. We'll do this chronologically. So if you've uh, given your life to Jesus recently, you haven't really gotten into the Word, or maybe you've been following Christ for a long time, but you've never been one to actually read the Bible through uh, from cover to cover, uh, then hopefully this series will help you kind of get some things in context in the Old Testament, because that's kind of difficult for us uh, at times. We'll be taking some leaps Timeline-wise, I'll try to kind of fill in those gaps each week. Uh, So Samuel, King David, the prophet Elijah, King Josiah, the prophet Daniel, Queen Esther, Nehemiah. But we're starting in Judges with Deborah. Everybody say Deborah. Deborah was this amazing woman 
that God used in incredible ways. She was a judge at about 1260 B.C. And uh, these judges were chosen by God to lead their people, the Israelites, out of something bad and to save them, right? So somebody is depressing them, somebody has conquered them, whatever, and the judges are leading the people out of that. And uh, most of them, as you read through the book of Judges, most of these people just aren't really cut out to be leaders and saviors and, and all of that. Uh, they just, they're just not. These aren't people that you would choose to be judges, to, to lead the people, to be game changers. But God did. And you'll find that to be true of most of these game changers we're going to talk through. Because maybe you think that you can't be used by God. Maybe you think you don't have what it takes. Maybe you're coming in today going like, I've seen other people be used by God in mighty ways, but that's not me. I've got too much. I don't have enough gifting. I don't have enough ability. I'm not talented enough. Or maybe it's past sins and past mistakes that kind of have you paralyzed in fear, going, I crossed the line back then, and I, I can't possibly be used by God in a mighty way, so somebody else needs to do that. Maybe you're haunted by your past. But I'm hoping after you see in this series what King David did, after you hear about how scared Elijah was, how young King Josiah was, how ill-equipped Esther was, I'm hoping that you'll see that God can and will use you no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done. I'm hoping that through this series you'll latch on to the transformative power of God in your, your life and you'll start acting on what God has planned for you instead of sitting on the sidelines letting other people do it. Let me help you place judges into the context of the Bible um, and then we'll look closely at chapter 4. Because don't forget, this is not uh, 66 separate books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. It's not separate books that don't have anything to do with each other. This is one cohesive unit of Scripture telling us one thing about who God is, okay? And so this is, this is all connected. And so we want to be sure we understand uh, what we're going to talk about in the context of the whole Bible. So Judges is the seventh book of the Old Testament. And um, it's just after the book of Joshua. So Moses leads the people out of Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy towards the promised land. They're in the desert. Uh, they, they sin against God. God punishes them by making them wander in the desert, basically walk a big circle in the desert for 40 years. Moses is leading them through that. Finally, he gets to the promised land, but just outside of the promised land, Moses dies and Joshua takes leadership. And it's Joshua who leads the people into the promised land. Some amazing things happen under Joshua's leadership. Um, a city called Jericho has these huge walls all around it, fortified city. Um, the Israelites are told by God through Joshua to walk around the city a bunch of times playing instruments. And it's just a weird story. And then all of a sudden the walls fall down and God gives them the victory. It's not just a Sunday school story that, that like our kids learn, like, oh, Jericho is not real. It was real. Okay, it really happened. Another time under Joshua's leadership, they're in a battle and the sun is going down, but they're about to win, and they need some more light. And Joshua speaks to the sun. 
And he says, stand still. And it does. For a whole day, the sun stands still. It was on February 28th. <laughs> leap year, you guys with me? Okay, just kidding about the leap year thing. Yeah, it's this amazing thing. Like, you can speak to the sun and tell it to stand still if you want. Um, but don't tell me about it until it actually happens. Joshua speaks to the sun, stands still. The Israelites have enough light then to win the battle. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And Joshua, just before he dies, he gathers the people together in kind of a, a rousing, la one last thing before I die kind of a speech. He, he talks to the people of Israel, and um, he says this in, in Joshua uh, chapter 24, right at the end of the book of Joshua, just before Judges. He says in verse, 14, verse 15, Choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people of Israel, they listen to this speech. He draws a line in the sand. Which side are you on? The people of Israel go, we'll serve God. We'll stop disobeying him. We'll obey him. We'll follow him. We'll obey his commandments. We won't serve the gods of the people. We'll, we'll do this. And that's how the book, the, the book of Joshua ends. And then in the next book, it's, it's Judges. And, and when they entered the promised land, the people of Israel had basically these allotments, these land allotments. They were supposed to go into these areas, each tribe, and take over the land, conquer the people there, drive them out completely, and take the land that God had given them. And so Joshua says, choose this day which you will serve. They say, we'll serve the Lord. And then they do it. Judges chapter 1, they begin to serve the Lord. They Obey God. They follow the Lord for like 26 verses. Like 26 verses, they make it, following the Lord. Verse 27, we find out that some of the Israelites didn't actually drive the people out of the lands like they were supposed to. They left gods there. They left people there. And it angers the Lord. And, and God sends an angel to the people of Israel basically to say, what are you guys doing? I was clear, drive everybody out. You've chosen to disobey me. And the angel says, for God, he says, I will no longer fight your battles for you because of this. Because of your disobedience, I'm not going to fight your battles. I'm not going to go out and win it for you. Instead, I'm going to let other nations and peoples around you be a thorn in your side. And the people, of course, respond with, repentance and crying out, we're sorry, we're going to do better. We don't, you know, we, please don't do that. We're, we want to follow you. We will obey you. But just five verses after that, in chapter 2, verse 11, they start serving other gods again. And listen to how God responds in Judges, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers, who plundered them, because that's what plunderers do. They plunder people. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was what? 
against them for what? Harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Did you hear what just got said? Not only did the Lord not help them, but his hand was against them for their harm. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that'll mess up your whole American idea of God that is this genie granting wishes, this fairy godmother doing whatever. Because some of us have this idea of God that he is no longer this God of the Old Testament that is wrath-filled and angry and justice-oriented and holy. He's now a God of the New Testament who is Jesus and just like fairy godmother, like floating around, like sprinkling pixie dust here and there. Like, I'm not worried about you not obeying my commands. I'm not worried. I'm just a God of love. It's okay. God of love. This will mess that up because he goes against them because of their obedience. See, the truth that most of us don't want to accept is that when we disobey God's commands, there are real consequences. When we disobey God's commands, there are real consequences. I mean, some of us have this view of God where we will live, we will have the audacity to live in open defiance of his commands and still think that he'll bless us because he's a God of love or because we're good people. We'll even ask him for his blessing. God, please bless me. Please take care of my family. All the while, we're living Totally opposite of the way he asks us or commands us to live. And some of us think that God should make our problems go away. But maybe those problems are actually consequences of disobedience. And you're going to have to walk through them. You're going to have to experience some pain, some hurt, before you can get around them. So in Judges, God goes to battle against the Israelites, causes great distress, a consequence of their disobedience. But the next verse says this in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So when we disobey the commands of God, there are real consequences. But If we turn from our disobedience, he will always provide a way back. Isn't that good news? That it's not like I messed up once and I've somehow disqualified myself from God's grace. The the truth here is that there is no place you can run, no line you can cross where God's arm won't reach you, where his grace isn't sufficient for your sin. It's good news, right? He always provides a way back to him. We serve a God who loves the rescue. He loves saving, rescuing, redeeming his people time and time and time again. This time, it's through judges sent to save the people. Now, Judges, um, judges is not a book that we get into a lot on Sunday mornings. Uh, This is not a book that we talk about a lot. We don't do a lot of, you don't hear a lot of series through, verse by verse through the book of Judges, right? I mean, we'll sometimes we'll mention like Gideon. We'll grab Gideon, we'll grab Samson. If we're looking for an example of women in the Old Testament, we'll grab Deborah, right, and talk about her. Uh, But we don't really talk about the whole book of Judges a lot. And I think there are a few reasons for that. But one is that the book of Judges is pretty rough, 
I mean, have you read it? If you haven't read the book of Judges, you need to read it this week because it's amazing. All right? It is a rough it is a rough book, like gory, crazy, graphic things happen in the book of Judges. There's war, there's violence, there's rampant sexual depravity, and also there's like some straight up Matrix, Avengers, Braveheart type scenes in this thing. I mean, there's a guy named, a judge named Shamgar. He doesn't get a lot of press in Judges, but there's a guy named Shamgar. Uh, it's probably what I'm going to name my next son call him Shammy. Makes sense, right? So Shammy, in the book of Judges, whoops up on 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You guys used an ox goad this morning, right? You know what that is. It's just a stick that you hit oxen with, all right? So that he had this stick, and he whoops up on 600. Usually 600 on one doesn't go well for the one, right? But this time it does. It's pretty amazing. Another guy named Ehud goes to the king of the Moabites who were enslaving and hurting God's people. And he assassinates the king of the Moabites. And he takes a sword, the text says, and he stabs the king to kill him. And the text says that the the king of the Moabites was so overweight that the hilt of the sword gets lost inside of him. Awesome, right? I mean, awesome. Awesome. This is the book of Judges. Samson gets hulked out a few different times in the book of Judges. Just goes crazy. He grabs a lion, rips a lion to pieces with his bare hands. Don't read read over that. Like, you haven't done that. All right? You haven't done that, right? Another time, this is my favorite favorite story in the book of Judges. Another time, Samson, just think about this, okay? Just think about the practicality of this. Samson goes out and he captures 300 foxes. You haven't captured one fox. (laughs) Samson captures 300 with his bare hands and he ties them together, their tails together, two by two. Think about this. I'll just read over it. It actually happened ties their tails together two by two, sets them on fire, and lets them go. Awesome, right? Some of you are like calling PETA, all right? This is not, it already happened. It was a long time ago, right? You can't get mad at Samson, all right? Plus, if you could capture foxes, you probably could, would, all right? I would too. Another time, Samson defeats a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey as a weapon. It's crazy. Judges is a crazy book of the Bible. I love it. You should read it. You should read it because we're just going to talk about one judge. Let's get to it. Deborah is the fourth judge in the book of Judges, just after Ehud and Shamgar, the ox goad guy. So Shammy whoops up on 600 Philistines. And then chapter 4, verse 1 says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The commander of his army was Sisera, verse 3. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 
years. So that's the situation. Israel has again fallen into disobedience, into sin, and now they're crying out to God because of what Jabin and Sisera are going to do to them. They need a game changer. They need a game changer. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. That's another name. You could name your kid, call him Lappy. Lapidoth, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. That's not in my notes. I just say stuff like that just to make sure you're listening. Was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit, un- she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So the earliest picture we have of Deborah is that she's recognized as a leader and a prophetess and she's judging, literally setting up shop under a palm, judging disputes between people, okay? So she's a real judge in the literal sense. And uh, now right out of the gate here, Deborah is markedly different from 99% of leaders, judges, generals in the Bible, right? Why? It's okay to say it. She's a woman, right? She's a woman. That's different than most ever. She's, she's a woman. And uh, maybe you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying that her being a woman was a disadvantage to her? Yes. That's absolutely what I'm saying. Because at this time, women, they just didn't get this role. They didn't get this leadership role. And this is 12th century B.C., 3,000 plus years ago. So women didn't get this role for a long time after this either, right? And I'm not just saying culturally. Like this is just a cultural thing that women weren't in leadership. I'm saying God didn't put women in this kind of a leadership role at this time and a long time after this. God didn't do it. And I think, I think you'll see that in, the fall, in, these, in these verses that we're going to go through. But she is totally, Deborah is totally unlikely as far as a judge candidate goes, as far as a game changer candidate goes. The, the Canaanites are hurting. They're hurting God's people. He needs a game changer. If you were there at this time, if you were a part of the nation of Israel, you wouldn't have chose Deborah for this job. You just wouldn't have. Nobody would have. You wouldn't have picked her. And don't you think she knew that? I mean, don't you think she knew that women didn't usually get this job? I mean, don't you think she knew that? She had to have had doubts. She had to have been unsure when God told her to take the lead. But you know what's interesting? God actually didn't tell Deborah to take the lead. God comes to Deborah and tells her to go tell someone else to be the judge. Deborah is the only judge who had a partner. The only judge who is mentioned in tandem with someone else. And she's the only judge who was called on to lead in the end because someone else refused to accept the mantle of leadership like God wanted them to. Look at verse uh, 6 with me. She's known as a judge and a prophetess. And then it says this, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. 
And I, God, will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Okay, so God tells Deborah to be the prophetess to be the mouthpiece, to be his mouthpiece, as he calls Barak to save Israel. That's how this starts. God doesn't call Deborah. He calls Barak. So Deborah, acting as the mouthpiece of God, sends for Barak and goes, hey, God's called you. Go get the 10,000 men, soldiers from Zebulun, the, tri- the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Go, go over there, get those soldiers, and God's going to give you the victory. He's going to make you, Barak, the savior of Israel. Now, if you're a guy in here and you're going, yeah, because men need to be leaders. Men are the leaders. We're the generals of the army. Yeah, God called a man. Just keep reading <laughs> because it doesn't go well, all right? This is not a text that we point to for male pride, all right? This is not that because Barak is called. God's going to lead him. God's going to give him the, the nation. He's going to let him be the game changer. And we're going like, come on, Barak. Like, you can, you can do this, right? I mean, what we're expecting is like a Braveheart scene, right? Where Barak like straps on the the armor and he gets in front of the men and he's like, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. (laughs) At least for a while. I could do the whole thing. You guys want me to do the whole thing? (laughs) Yes, no, I won't waste your time. But you expect Barak to be like blue paint on his face. Like, let's do this. 10,000, ah, let's go. That's what we want Barak to do. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, Deborah, if you'll go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What? It's like, come on, Barak. Be a man. Step up. Like, let's do this, right? You're called to be a game changer, and your answer is, if you hold my hand, I'll do it? I mean, that's your answer? Deborah, this woman, why don't you come with me, and then I might be able to, come on. Doesn't give you a lot of confidence in the male gender, does it? Not a lot of male pride in this text. Don't get mad at me if you're a guy, it's just in the Bible, right? You can read it yourself. Let's look at Deborah's answer, because now, She's presented with a problem. She was called by God to get Barak to be the judge and lead the people. Barak has refused. He doesn't want to do it without her. So what is she going to do? They need to fight the Canaanites. There needs to be a game changer. The game changer chosen by God has chickened out, right? Has chickened out. And there's never been a woman leader of Israel, especially on the battlefield. So let's see what she says in verse 9. And she said, I will surely go with you. She's like, all right, I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a what? Woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. She goes, okay, but if, you, if I go with you, you're not going to get the credit for it. Cicero will be defeated by a woman. Now, if the male-female leadership thing wasn't an issue, Deborah wouldn't have even said this, right? 
She wouldn't have even said that this, she, she wouldn't have said woman here, right? Why, why did she make a point to say a woman will get the credit? It's because it wasn't normal. It was outside of the way God had set things up to work at this point. God called Barak a man to lead the troops. He was supposed to be the game changer, but Deborah stepped up in response to his cowardice and his lack of faith. And she was right about the credit thing, wasn't she? Because here we are 3,000 some years later, and we're in this Game Changer series, and I didn't choose Barack the judge to talk about. Who are we talking about? Deborah. If you go to Kidstown and they're going through the judges, you won't see a week on Barack the judge. You'll see a week on who? Deborah the judge. She was absolutely right about getting the credit for this. We're doing a message on Deborah. So Deborah and Barak, they go to these two tribes of Israel, and sure enough, God lets them raise up 10,000 men to go uh, to battle against the Canaanites, just like Deborah said. And when Sisera hears about this, the commander of Jabin's army, he grabs his 900 chariots, and he goes to battle, goes to meet these Israelites in battle. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, and Deborah said to Barak, so get the picture. They're standing up kind of on a hillside. The battlefield is before them. They've got 10,000 Israelite warriors, and the chariots are coming from uh, the Canaanite army. Okay, that's where they're at. And Deborah turns to Barak and says, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Okay, so God speaks to Deborah, the prophetess, and says, tell Barak that he needs to get 10,000 soldiers and go to battle against the Canaanites, and I'll win it for them. But Barak says, only if you come with me, Deborah. Deborah gives the warning about a woman getting the glory, but she goes with them. Then Barak calls 10,000 soldiers from two tribes. It works. It happens. They get ready for battle. The enemy hears about it, comes to the battlefield. And what does Deborah do? Does Deborah do the Braveheart thing? Step out in front of the, the soldiers and go, here we go. Who's ready? God's going to give us the glory. Oh, like Does Deborah take the reins from Barak? Does she go out and lead God's army? No. That's not what she does. But, I mean, she had the right to, doesn't she? I mean, Barak had already given the reins over. He'd already given up his right to lead. He'd already said, no, I'll just go if you go. I'll just go with you, right? He'd already given it up, but she didn't, she didn't do that. She could have led him into battle, but she didn't. Instead, she turns to Barak and goes, go, lead the troops to battle. The Lord will go before you. Even at this moment, she's trying to get the guy God originally had in mind for this job to rise up and answer the call like he's supposed to. And he does it. He, he does it. And the people of God defeat the Canaanites. And Sisera, 
the general of Jabin's army, the Canaanite army, he ends up fleeing on foot, and he goes into, ends up basically in the, the tent of an Israelite sympathizer named Jael. And he goes to sleep, or he lays down to rest, and Jael grabs a tent peg and jams it through his temple. Awesome, right? It's one of the other crazy things that happens in Judges. And in so doing, Deborah's prophecy about a woman getting the credit is fulfilled, we could say, maybe in two ways, right? Because Deborah leads the people to victory. She's the judge that's remembered. But Sisera dies by the hand of a woman. You tracking with me? So it fulfills the prophecy. This is, this is Deborah the judge. Chapter 5 is a song that she sings to God after the great victory against the Canaanites. She immediately gives credit where credit is due. God did this. Yahweh did this. He's the one who led us. He's the one who gave us the victory. He fought the battle for us. He deserves the glory. Chapter 5, Judges chapter 5, and the story of Deborah end like this. And the land had rest for 40 years. So because of Deborah's leadership, because of what God did through Deborah, it ushers in this 40-year peace. And then chapter 6, verse 1, next verse says, The people of Israel did what was what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Again, there's disobedience. The peace is disrupted by more sin, more consequences, but God ends up making a way where there was no way through a judge named Gideon. You can read about that this week on your own time. Listen, Deborah was absolutely a game changer, wasn't she? But what was it about her that made that so? Why was she such a game changer? I think it was because of her game-changing wisdom. Deborah had this game-changing wisdom. And that's what I want to talk to you about before we head out of here today. Wisdom. How many of you want wisdom? Let me ask it. Let me ask again. How many of you are wise enough to want wisdom? Yeah, okay. I saw some of you raised your hand the first time and not the second time. So I lost, actually lost some people in that deal. God was handing out wisdom. You missed it. All right, you just missed it. Kidding. Here's the thing, though. When we talk about wisdom, what are we talking about? And what do we mean? When I think about biblical wisdom, the biblical idea of wisdom, the concept of wisdom, I think about two books in the Bible. There's other books that talk about wisdom in the Bible, but I think about these two books. One is the book of Proverbs. And the other is the book of James. And so I want to show you something in the book of James, chapter 3. James says this interesting thing about wisdom. He says there's actually not just one kind of wisdom. That there are two kinds of wisdom. Look at it in verse 13 of James, chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For, there, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile 
practice. So James says that there are actually two kinds of wisdom. From above and from below, right? So some people have wisdom, but it's worldly wisdom. Think about that a second. James even calls it demonic wisdom. Think about that. Let that sink in. People are walking around, maybe some of you, walking around with a kind of wisdom being listened to by others because of this wisdom. Thinking that you have wisdom. Being called wise. But what you have is actually demonic. Isn't that interesting? Think, think about that a second. Let me illustrate what I mean. I went online and just Googled, what is wisdom? I don't recommend it. <laughs> what is wisdom? Just to see like, what would come up. And here are some things that I saw. Aristotle said, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. That's interesting, right? Um, puts you at the center of things. Knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. Einstein said, wisdom is not the product of schooling, but of a lifelong attempt to acquire it. So you're wise just by pursuing wisdom. You don't just go after it, and that makes you wise. Confucius said, to know what you know and to know what you don't know. That's real wisdom. Here are some more. Wisdom comes only through suffering. Each of us knows all. We need only open our minds to hear our own wisdom. If that's not, I mean, that's our world, isn't it? We already know it. Just need to look inside. Oof, that's scary. Each of us knows all. We need only open our minds to hear our own wisdom. Wisdom consists of being able to distinguish between dangers and make a choice of the least harmful. Here's one. Memory is the mother of all wisdom. Memory is the mother of all wisdom. Listen to this one, though. Wisdom is the daughter of experience. So we have some maternal confusion for wisdom. We don't know whose wisdom, who wisdom's mom is. Like, we don't know that. Here's another one. There are many gates to the house of wisdom. Many ways to find wisdom. And then another. It requires wisdom to understand wisdom. I like this one. It requires wisdom to understand wisdom. The music is nothing if the audience is deaf. Sometimes I feel like that up here. I'm like, ah. <laughs> music is nothing if the audience is deaf. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Then wisdom is a deeper conscience of ignorance. Some of you guys are like, I am totally wise. <laughs> I got <laughs> ignorant, all right? And wise. So what is, what is wisdom again? It's not so clear, is it? Now how do we get it? How do we get this wisdom? But what are we even trying to get? Because that's, that's confusing. But maybe that's out there, right? That's just outside the church. Like this is just secular world. They don't know what wisdom is. But maybe we know, right? Like we have the secret. What's wisdom? We know what it is. So I asked around. I asked some of you. Everybody I talked to said, in one way or another, wisdom is deepening of understanding. It's a deeper understanding about how things work, why things work. People said it comes from God, but it's a deeper understanding about how and why things work the way they work. God giving us a deeper understanding. Sounds good, right? But is that wisdom? Doesn't that sound like a working definition of the word knowledge? Isn't knowledge 
a deeper understanding of how things work and why they work. Yeah. You see, I think wisdom is so much more than that. The wisdom I want, the wisdom that comes from above, because James 3.13 used this phrase, the meekness of wisdom. You see, godly wisdom isn't knowledge. It's more than that. Godly wisdom is saturated with humility. Godly wisdom is saturated with humility. We saw that in Deborah. She was a prophetess. Everyone's coming to her for answers, but God doesn't choose her to lead the people of Israel out against the Canaanites. He chooses Barak. She doesn't respond in pride. Why? Because she's wise, full of humility that comes with wisdom. And then when Barak says no and chickens out, she doesn't turn to God and go, well, you should have just called me. Told you. Why are you even bringing this little wimpy boy here? I can handle this. She doesn't do that, does she? Then when she takes the reins, leads, helps get the the, um, Israelite soldiers together, 10,000, she doesn't jump out in battle. She says, Barak, you go lead them. Humility, right? Humility. Listen, if you think you're wise, but you're not humble, you're wrong. Because biblical wisdom is saturated with humility. Godly wisdom is saturated with humility. If you think you're wise, but you're not humble, you're mistaken. Wisdom is more than just a deeper understanding. Wisdom from above is so much more than that. I mean, look at the next verse in James chapter 3. He talks about the wisdom from below, and then he says this in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wow, it almost seems like it has nothing to do with understanding, doesn't it? And we see all of this in the game changer Deborah. She was wise in the way that mattered, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So do you want to be like Deborah? Do you want to be a game changer for your family, a game changer for your friends, your workplace, your neighbors, your kids? Do you want to usher in a time of peace for those that you have contact with, impact in? What's what's holding you back? What's holding you back from being the game changer God wants you to be? Maybe, maybe it's wisdom. Maybe you lack wisdom. Maybe you need wisdom. But be careful that you seek the wisdom from above instead of the wisdom from below because they're different. And how do you get it? Just one thought about that. Wisdom is not acquired. Wisdom is only given. 
Wisdom is not something you go and obtain by your willpower and your idea and whatever else. Wisdom is something given to you by a gracious God. Wisdom is not acquired, it's only given. Actually, that's how James starts his book. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom from above, the wisdom you need, The wisdom James 3 is talking about, the wisdom that Deborah had, it has one source and one source only, and that's God. That's Deborah, our first game changer. Next week, Samuel. Your homework between now and then is to read the book of 1 Samuel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you uh, for your grace and your mercy as you give us the wisdom we need to accomplish what you have called us to accomplish, to change the game in our lives like you've called us to. I thank you, Jesus, for that. I pray against right now pride that would seep into our hearts. Right now, that voice that's saying, you know, I'm pretty wise, actually. I got some wisdom. I got some wisdom. People call me wise. I make good decisions. I know a lot. I pretty much got this down. (laughs) Oh, the folly of standing as finite, temporary beings before an infinite, eternal God and saying, I got this. Oh, the folly. God, I pray that you would humble us humble our hearts, our minds before you. Let us admit that we don't have even an ounce of wisdom compared to you. And let us fall before you asking for wisdom that comes from above and shunning wisdom that comes from your life. Those of you who are Jesus followers, I just pray that God would give you wisdom. That God would give you wisdom from above. Lord, we ask these things in your name. We give you all the glory for all that you're doing in us, through us, in our church. We ask that you would continue to bless us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Why don't you stand with me? We've got prayer workers on the side. If you want prayer for anything, sickness in your family, finances, wisdom, whatever it is, make sure you go get prayer um, during this song or after it. But here's my prayer for you today. May you be open to being used by God in new and faith-stretching ways. May you be inspired by the wisdom and humility of Deborah. And may you seek wisdom from above and not below. Make sure you go to a life group this week and talk this over. If you're not in one, talk to somebody with a brown shirt on your way out. I heard somebody say, Uh, Last week, like, hey, I don't go to life groups because there's no child care. That's a lie from the pit of hell, all right? There's child care all over this place, all right? And so uh, we've taken care of that. Somebody else said, I I don't go to life group because there's not a day that works for me. We Every day we have, basically, we have a life group. So I think you can find a time that works for you. We invite you to get plugged into a life group starting today. There's lists out there. There's cards for each life group. You can fill something out. We'll find a life group for you based on your uh, details and all of that. So please make sure you do that today. And remember, 
just like you've been helped today to take your next step towards God, don't let it stop there. Go home. Go to your neighbors. Go to your family. Go to your friends and help them take their next step towards God. Open the Bible to Judges 4 and talk about Deborah. Open the Bible to James 3 and talk about wisdom that's from above and not from below. Be a Jesus follower who disciples other Jesus followers. Amen? God bless you. We'll see you next week for Baptism Sunday and week two in our game changer.